There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste you. of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day, hope you're well and that you've got a few moments for a great discussion because that's what we aim for here on Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny. I'm a former political journalist and academic and columnist based at the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. We're going to talk a bit about poverty and marginalisation today because, let's face it, the poor and disadvantaged are not just confined to the economic periphery, they're kept on the political periphery as well. With an election looming, the peripheral status of those people will be emphasised, albeit by exclusion. Expect to hear plenty about the virtuous working families and to see policies aimed at protecting generous tax breaks and other boondoggles that ensure many people are locked out of housing security while others have two or more heavily subsidised roofs over their heads. And that's before you even get to the generous tax treatment of superannuation, the non-taxation of dividend income for those wealthy enough to have shareholdings and other things. But first, let me bring in my regular Democracy Sausage co-host, the political scientist, Dr. Maria Tafliger, because we could not embark on this week's episode without first acknowledging the shocking debasement of truth we've seen in recent days in our politics, particularly from our Prime Minister. Maria, howdy. Hello, how are you? I've had a few people telling me this week on Twitter things like, uh, you know, the next democracy sausage virtually writes itself. I guess that was just the sort of level of amazement and incredulity at what had been going on in politics. What did you make of the PM not just backflipping on electric vehicles, but then saying he'd never been opposed to them in the first place when we can all plainly remember the 2019 election where Labor's plan, which was, let's be clear, really proposing a target of 50% of new vehicle sales in 2030 would be electric, which is probably 
where it'll end up anyway and where it needs to end up. But nonetheless, that was viciously attacked at the time as, uh, you know, a war on the weekend. Uh, the PM talked about electric vehicles that would have no range, that couldn't tow a, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't tow your, a trailer or, or your camping equipment, you know, that you'd have to run power cords from the fourth floor of your apartment down to the down to the street to, to you know to make them viable and all this kind of stuff it was absolutely unhinged the sort of thing that was said and now the pm just says it didn't happen he didn't say it yeah i i, I think the thing that actually surprises me is that it's actually not been a bigger deal that the the you know we have the footage uh, we all kind of know that as you sort of made clear that that he actually did sort of say these things and and the sort of the the ease with which he is sort of sort of able to assert that he never that he believes right and I think that's the important word there that he believes that he's never spoken in this way is is I think quite extraordinary and I have seen a lot of commentary sort of suggesting that well you know it won't really matter for marginal electorates or or you know where the election will be won you know John Howard was famously called a lying uh, rodent in the lead up to the 2004 election and it didn't really matter because, you know, he reframed that whole election to be about who do you trust to keep the economy going. And, and we can see Scott Morrison, who was state director of the New South Wales Liberal Party at the time, pretty much, re, re, you know, rehashing the, this exact same formula. But the key difference is, and I think this is actually the important point, right, and, and the, the bigger picture here is that John Howard was comparatively a person of far greater policy substance he was asking for a fourth term in 2004 and he had a substantial reform agenda that he could point to. And I don't think we can say the same for this government. In fact, I think this is the first prime minister to actually be running for for re-election, having served a full term upon which we can assess him. And I think the most extraordinary thing about sort of, I guess, returning to the future, I suppose, is how I think about this new line that Scott Morrison is 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 sort of reheating about who do you trust to keep interest rates low, which is what he's kind of doing, is that it sort of points to the fact that it's actually not clear what their agenda is for the next uh, three years. You know, what is their vision for Australia moving into what is very clearly a new kind of policy paradigm and a new kind of age, right? We see that with with COP and we see that with, you know, they're the ones talking about how quickly technology is changing so quickly that they can't even, you know, factor it into their their modelling. But it's not actually clear Mm. to me um, what they actually think Australia is supposed to look like or will look like except for what it currently looks like. And I just wonder why, you know, it might be the case that people in marginal electorates don't really care about whether or not Morrison tells the truth or not. I, I, I don't think that's right. I think people need to have faith in their political leaders that they'll actually keep their promises. So what promises will he actually make? And I do think that for voters in wealthy inner, inner city seats, you know, blue ribbon seats, I think they do care about integrity. I think they do care about good government. You would certainly hope so. Um, This is what I think is a really disturbing, a potential reality here because, in a sense, the the election becomes really a testing of of that very question. We have such egregious falsehoods being spoken, you know, obvious lies in some case where things are said that, uh, you know, claims are made that certain things weren't said when we have them on tape being said. We have the Prime Minister asked point blank the other day, have you ever, do you tell lies in in public life? And he says, I don't believe so, which is a typically slippery 
kind of answer from Scott Morrison, frankly. Well, that's right. It's a question of opinion, not fact then. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, just typically it's sort of nothing's completely nailed down. Uh, you know, what worries me is that there may be some truth to the fact that uh, the, the electorate, when it comes down to the ballot box, is not concerned over those things. I mean, it is it is true that people like to like a politician in order to, you know, to vote for them and that is an issue. I think, you know, the Prime Minister's integrity has been on the line on a number of things recently, not least the spectacular blow-up with the French and uh, you had Emmanuel Macron uh, referring to the Prime Minister as, as having lied to him uh, and... Uh, the, you know, the Prime Minister denying that, but there have been a number of cases of this. You had, uh, you know, then, of course, um, Malcolm Turnbull uh, also speaking from uh, from COP26 in Glasgow uh, saying that Scott Morrison has a reputation for lying that he's lied to him many times. How much of this rubs off on the overall impression uh, of uh, Scott Morrison out there in voter land, I, I guess, remains to be seen. And we haven't seen the campaign yet, so we don't know the extent to which Scott Morrison's opponents, Labor in particular, will be leveraging that, will be packaging that up and articulating it uh, back to to the electorate. So in a sense, I suppose this is all um, all supposition at the moment, whether voters will or won't rate it uh, very highly and whether they do at the moment rate it very highly as an issue. But we know that, you know, elections are fought on things like the economy and job security, uh, on on the potential of interest rates, on energy prices, uh, to a lesser extent on, on things like national security, if that seemed to be in some way at risk. So I suppose there's a, you know, there's a, there's a range of things that come in and it's never just one thing. But what worries me here is that we have a really sort of quite clear manifestation from Scott Morrison, as we've all noted before, but a manifestation here of a kind of a Trumpian uh, method, which is you, you're really only speaking to your supporters and the idea is to have enough supporters to win the election and to have them sufficiently revved up so they stick with you. And so by saying, no, I don't lie and no, that isn't a lie and no, I never said, said that, your supporters have something to cling on to. There's the denial. That's what they've got. Uh, it becomes, as you said, Maria, the whole charge from the beginning then becomes a matter of opinion. His opinion is it didn't happen. Uh, his critics say it did. That makes them opponents of his, irrespective of whether they are just you know people in the middle, whether they're just journalists, whether they're impartial people looking at the facts. They become opponents. It's the partisan partisanization, if I can use that word, of everything, and and that seems to be the way Morrison is approaching this. It's almost like market segmentation of the electorate. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a degree of that going on, but I think there is actually a really key difference between our politics and the United States or the UK, and that is compulsory voting. So that there's a limit to how far that strategy can work. And, you know, I, I certainly agree that I think uh, for many voters, whether or not the French president called Scott Morrison a liar is neither here nor there. Most people will kind of rally around the flag when an external person is attacking their credibility. And I think that's kind of analogous to, to John Howard and the accusations leveled at him about the AWB. That was a really complex story. I think most people were not across that, you know, the implications of that. And, and the government was able to sort of navigate its way around that. I think where the problem with Morrison has some inbuilt negatives, and that is the, the Scotty from marketing line, the line about the fact that all they do is announce stuff. And the fact that they don't have a policy agenda to point to that 
that they can kind of say, well, this, these are the kinds of things that we've already done in the past because actually what we've sort of had from this government is an awful lot of chop and change. Like even though like we, we could if we sort of sat down and really thought about, you know, policy reforms that they have actually done, you know, as someone who actually is paid to pay attention to this, like I feel like I need to sit down and get a piece of paper out and actually just kind of mull over. It doesn't spring to mind exactly what they have and haven't done. I think the average voter would have an even harder time of doing that. And so if Scott Morrison is essentially banking on saying, I'll give you more of the same. And I think what is interesting about the current state of quo about where we are in politics is it's really not clear which bits of the electorate really believe that the status quo can be sustained, you know, that, that the, the, the world isn't actually changing that we need to to change. And I think that's actually really dangerous for him because it's hard to say, trust me on my management when you don't have necessarily the record to prove or to look back and say, these are the kinds of indicative things that I will do. And his, his, his performance on the pandemic has been mixed. Well, that's that's true, although if we think about the last election, the 2019 election, essentially the case being made by the relatively unknown Scott Morrison at the time, he'd only acquired the job during that term, of course, from Malcolm Turnbull. He was relatively unknown. He went in as the underdog, something he's trying to claim again quite explicitly now. But if we look at what the, the political message was, it was essentially don't risk it with Labor. Uh, now, Labor obviously helped in that uh, in, in the sort of weaponization of that message by having a quite significant reform agenda. It had a lot of policy in the political marketplace. There were a lot of ideas. Uh, some of them were to, were, were to increase taxation, of course. There was the 45% by 2030 uh, emissions target, which I've said on many times on this on this podcast uh, is you know bare minimum now uh, and yet it was regarded at the time or depicted at the time by Morrison and Co as you know the height of, of of recklessness and economic vandalism and the like but it nonetheless the mechanism was essentially not so much uh, you know stick with us because we have a great legacy it was more like stick with us because we won't do all of these things that could result in you having higher energy prices could result in you having higher taxes could result in the economy having lower growth and all that sort of stuff in the uncertain world that we're in at the moment that is essentially the message that morrison is trying to re-energize it'll be tweaked uh, for the circumstances but it's essentially a government running almost as an opposition, uh, sort of uh, not really proposing anything, but existing, perhaps in the true tradition of the you know the, of, of conservative politics over a long period of time, existing almost for the purpose of ensuring that radical reformers can't get the uh, treasury benches. I think that's true, and I guess that's sort of why I think this question around trust and Morrison's trustworthiness is is actually. A more complex question than has probably been acknowledged because, well, can you actually trust him to, you know, deliver that kind of stability? Like, you know, will because he's all announcement and no follow through. Like, because he is Scotty from marketing, is he actually fair income? Like, that's a that you know, being fair income is an Australian value, and he presents himself as an Australian bloke, but he is also slippery with the truth. So, is he fair income? Can you actually trust him? When he says that labor is a real risk, is that is that really the case? Like, I I don't know the answer to these questions, but I don't I don't think that this trust story necessarily play out the same way that it did with John Howard because John Howard was a very different kind of person, and I think voters actually knew when he said, "Who do you trust to keep interest rates low?" They I think they could actually say, "Yeah, okay, 
he might have some integrity issues here and there. You know, he's been around for nine years as prime minister, but you know, I can trust him on the economy. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if voters really see the coalition in that frame of mind, or necessarily Scott Morrison in that frame of mind. I think that's actually an open question. And it's a fascinating one because, of course, uh, a lot of that, you know, who do you trust to keep uh, interest rates low was about who do you trust to manage the economy, as you said, uh, who do you trust to keep the budget in balance. The uh, budget was in a very healthy state back in, in those years, of course, you know, resources boom, cash flooding and the like. Things are quite different now. We've had a coalition government uh, throwing open the, the the doors to spending. You know, we've had sort of a hyper Keynesian period, really, where where government intervention has been extraordinary to keep the economy going. No one's really going to this election talking about balancing the budget. Uh, the budget itself, uh, one imagines, will you know be a much more sort of abstract notion and uh, sitting in the background. Uh, the idea of fiscal conservatism that even Kevin Rudd claimed status of in, in 2007. Um, there may be some statements made about that, but you can't imagine that having a huge amount of currency at the moment. The real issue is around uh, managing the economy rather than the budget per se and managing the economy in such a way that there isn't there aren't unforeseen risks that we don't see higher energy prices and everything else. We've already seen the coalition you know, trotting out a number of these lines. Uh, who do you trust? So even within the rubric of of uh, his quite shameless, you know, flick to uh, the 2050 target uh, just before going to COP, we saw Morrison sort of rehearsing this line. Okay, now, you know, which which essentially was the economy is, is we, we're finally admitting it, the economy is undergoing some sort of transformation as a result of the need to decarbonise. Who do you trust to look after the economy, to safeguard sections of the economy that are most deleteriously affected in that process? Do you trust us or do you trust Labor with their, you know, their their, their sort of ideological adventurism and and spending and the like? So, you know, there's there's a there's there's so many ways in which Scott Morrison, as a sort of a marketing guy, is looking at repackaging up these arguments and and uh, presenting them again. Yep, I I think he's. Doing it from a position of weakness right now, though, I mean, because I think the you know the aggressiveness of the campaigning, I think, points to the fact that they they know that that they that they are in trouble in certain parts of the country, and you know, different things are happening in different states and 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 different parts of cities versus regions, and I think what has sort of been overlooked is that the spending, the huge amount of spending the coalition has undertaken, and the climate policy for net zero has really angered the right-wing membership base of the Liberal Party. You know, this is not something that they support. And and for some of them, they feel like he is trashing their brand. And so, you know, I, I think I think that if, this is a fancy way of saying that there are a lot of unknowns in, in, in the current way politics is unfolding and that the way we like to think about it, to simplify it down, to talk about nationwide swings, I don't think that's going to going to play out in, in in the next coming election because things change so rapidly right now in, in terms of people's psyches and, and moods. I think it's really difficult to sort of predict exactly how all of these things will kind of shake out because when John Howard said, who do you trust to keep interest rates low in 2004, we, we were just ticking up on a once-in-a-century mining boom, having missed the tech wreck, having 
conquered inflation. You know, we were a relaxed and comfortable nation. We are not a relaxed and comfortable nation. We have been talking about inequality issues in some form or another since the 2013 budget, which has defined this government. And these issues aren't going away. It's just whether or not exactly how they are kind of framed in the upcoming contest you know I, I i don't i don't think the government will necessarily be able to control all of that aspect of those debates because they have racked up so much debt because they have had to acknowledge the fact that you know housing is an issue like i, th- I think i think it will be a, f- a fascinating contest a genuinely interesting electoral contest which is something that is difficult to say about australian elections because this is a very safe country and you know not much happens yeah, that's right. And it's, you're right. It's going to be interesting to see because these things always come down to a seat by seat contest, state by state, and then seat by seat. And of course, uh, as you as you rightly point out, Maria, the the right wing of the coalition, particularly the Nationals, are uh, are, are pretty incensed. In fact, we've had the extraordinary situation really since uh, COP26, where Australia was signatory to the agreement that would have all of the countries come back in uh, in 2022 with updated 2030 pledges and. And we've already, at the same time as signing it, like within 24 hours, 48 hours of signing it, we've had the Prime Minister pretty much clearly indicate that there won't be any adjustment by Australia to its 2030 target. And then on top of that, you know, which is just makes a mockery of, 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 of our international commitments. But then on top of that, to, to make, to make, you know, the, the laughable, just utterly risible and, and, and unintelligible, we've had Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, no less, saying that the NATS didn't sign up to even the agreement that was signed on behalf of the government. The Deputy Prime Minister of the Executive of the government saying that his party is not a signatory to what was agreed by Australia in the international climate change talks. I mean, it is uh, to talk about, I don't know, I'm speechless. It's, 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 it's cartoonic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morrison has handed away so much of his own authority, you know, like to the states over, over the management of the pandemic, to the nationals on um, how we tackle climate change, which is increasingly, an ec- well, he has reframed it now as an economic in issue, right? It's now part of the economic strategy going forward. And, you know, he's beholden to the junior coalition partner on, on that, on that front. I, and I guess, I, I guess these are this, this is why I think these questions around his tr- like trustworthiness and credibility are ultimately go to what he can be trusted to actually deliver or, or hold the line is what is is the promise or a, a pledge from the coalition government led by Scott Morrison? You know, will that actually be delivered? Yeah, will that cut any ice with voters? That's it's a really interesting question. Of course, the other side of it is is Labor bruised and traumatised from the shock 2019 loss after it went with all of those policies. There's a, a danger of p- potentially overcorrection, I suppose, of almost of overlearning the lesson of that and uh, rolling itself up into a to a small ball. Pretty clear that Anthony Albanese is aware of. Morrison's abilities here is his um, his tendency to campaign, his ability to weaponize issues, and is is looking to not give uh, Scott Morrison 
you know, enough sort of elbow room to really swing punches at the moment. Of course, there's a way to go yet. We, we, we so we're within six months of the election, but we don't know exactly when it'll be, either March or May probably, and I suspect probably May because, you know, there's been talk of having another budget before the election. It is interesting the pressure that's coming on to Labor, the mumbling that's going on within the sort of broader centre-left about whether Labor is providing enough alternative, enough vision, whether it's being adventurous enough. And I suppose Albanese may be making a calculation here that he's prepared to weather those uh, those complaints uh, for the bigger prize of actually being able to win the election and then perhaps um, and then perhaps provide active government after that. But it doesn't make for a particularly edifying contest. You've got a, a sort of a inveterate liar on one side and uh, uh, and and pretty modest offerings on the other side at the moment. It's about Albanese wanting to make sure that where 2019 was an election that Scott Morrison made all about the opposition, about the Labor opposition, the Labor opposition this time wants to make sure this election is all about the government. And I guess if Labor is successful in doing that, there's not much policy legacy for the government to rely on and there's a whole lot of other problems and scandals and uh, rorted programs and the like that um, that that people can focus on. It's 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 really going to be um, a case of who's more successful at at what they do here in that in that election campaign. Yeah, I mean it's extraordinary given the amount of scandals surrounding this government that you know that that it is competitive, and I think it goes to show like the strangeness of of the times and the way the times have sort of have, I guess, sort of accelerated some conversations we were already having about inequality and and suppressed others. And it's probably yes. a good chance to to bring our guests in who know much more about this than us. It probably is a good chance to do that. Look, I might what I might just do is, is quickly go to a break and then we'll come back and we'll bring in our guests because, as you say, we do need to talk about inequality. And I was planning to do that before we got to a break, but I think we're in need of doing so. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, as we were discussing before the break, among many other things, the inequality agenda, let's bring in our guests here because uh, this is, in a way, a special contra edition of Democracy Sausage with the host of another podcast. 
This one's called Life's Lottery, and one of its co-hosts is Professor Glyn Davis, who's been on this podcast before, on, on Democracy Sausage before. He, of course, has a long and distinguished academic record. He's distinguished professor, indeed, of political science at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. He's a former VC at Melbourne University, uh, among many other stellar things in his career. Glyn, welcome back. Mark, thank you very much, and thank you, Maria. And it's uh, it's great. Um, doing the dueling podcasts idea. Uh, Life's Lottery has been a wonderful experiment for us, but we've also learned a lot and enjoyed immensely our engagement with Democracy Sausage. Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. Also with us is one of Australia's foremost advocates for the marginalised. She's an academic, she's a commentator, she's a teacher, she's a sublime communicator, and she's an author that's Dr. Liz Allen. She's no stranger, as I say, to this podcast, and she's uh, the author of the 2020 book, The Future of Us, and was named among the national top five academics in the humanities and social sciences by the ABC in 2018. Liz, welcome back. Hello. I, I really like the idea of being on the podcast crossover episode. This is really cool. It's very meta, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> Yes, so let's let's go to some of these uh, questions. Glenn, um, you're the CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is really behind Life's Lottery. If, if you wouldn't mind, just tell, tell us what that is for those who are unfamiliar with it. Sure. Paul Ramsey was a private hospital entrepreneur uh, across many continents who built a very successful uh, organisation and uh, Sadly, when his life ended in 2014, he decided to donate the bulk of this uh, very large estate to a foundation. And that foundation has, over the last few years, sort of been working through its strategy and how it makes the best difference in Australia. And as I'm sure Liz will, will tell us, when you look at this, the fundamental issues facing this country, poverty really is an enormously important topic. 3.4 million Australians living in poverty. It's not talked about, as you said in your introduction, it won't be much discussed in the election campaign to come. And yet for 3.4 million Australians, including nearly three quarters of a million children, their whole life experience is bound up with the fact that in this country, which thinks of itself as the land of the fair go, uh, it, it can be very difficult, uh, very difficult indeed. So the Paul Ramsey Foundation's sole mission now is to break the cycle of disadvantage and it has a particular focus on young people doing that. And Life's Lottery is not there as a podcast to promote the foundation but to promote discussion about the issues where the foundation works in. So uh, it's a chance to talk to a range of people who are on the front line, who are making a difference and who analytically have a lot to offer around what can we learn, what can we do better? And what's the sort of what sort of issues have you covered on on the podcast? It's just, it, it's done as a sort of a series, isn't it? And people can uh, people can look it up quite easily. Uh, what sort of issues have you looked at as as your sort of episode headings? Yes, on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As I understand the praise goes. Uh, so it's been really fascinating. Uh, we've we've most recently focused on women and children in prison. It's not known just how many. Um, you know, we don't track when people go to prison, whether they have children, and we don't necessarily have arrangements to look after them. In some jurisdictions, this is solved by having young children actually serve in prison with their mothers, which is an extraordinary mm. thought. 
Uh, but but a reality. But there are relatively few facilities to do that because it's not open even to most. So we've been talking to Susan Dennison from Griffith University Criminology Institute about her work trying to track numbers, trying to get a sense of this experience. Uh, we've been talking to Matthew Cox, who runs, uh, until recently, ran Logan Together, which is one of the really interesting community impact projects in the in the southern suburbs of Brisbane and down toward the Gold Coast, uh, a community with many challenges. And he's talked about how do you put together a, a response that doesn't necessarily rely on government to try and make a, a difference in that community. Our final episode for this series has a fascinating conversation with Susan Uran, who is the president and CEO of the Pew Charitable Trust in the United States. And the Pew Trust has put a huge emphasis on reform of the criminal justice system, and in particular, reform of prisons. And so we get her to explain why and the how of, of doing so. In each case, we're trying to raise important topics and give voice to people who've got deep experience in, in that area. Liz, I imagine that uh, reference to uh, the costs of it, uh, the costs of these things, is, is, a, is a, can be a pretty persuasive one. Uh, as we've all been saying, people who are living in, in poverty are, are kind of politically marginalised. They won't feature hugely in the election. The parties aren't courting their votes particularly. Um, is is there is is there a, a future in running sort of economic arguments for uh, for addressing some of these really quite uh, persistent problems that are very expensive for society? I mean, particularly prisons, for example, are, are very expensive things to build and to run and uh, for people to uh, be housed in. And yet, they're a function of a whole lot of dysfunction. It's not just purely poverty, of course, but it's a you know it's a strong determinant of it. So, what, what do you think? Are they, are, is there potential for changing the way we look at some of these questions so that you can leverage voter concerns over cost? Yeah, that that's a really interesting insight into considering this, right? And and let me start um, my response by saying that I describe myself as someone who lost life's lottery. You know, I've come a long way since uh, my humble beginnings, but I still feel like I bear and carry with me the the disadvantage of, of my um, early life. Definitely see the potential to talk about the economic consequences of us not addressing inequality as a society. So say, for example, if we know that um, the, the costs per year of sending someone to jail and housing someone in jail is higher than the cost of educating uh, a young person uh, in school for a year. So we know those things and these things, I think, are, these matters are talked about quite a lot in society, but it still doesn't hook people enough in the mainstream to get people interested or even worried. And I think that's largely because poverty is hidden in Australia. And so it's not something that we confront on a regular basis and for those that that live in poverty they see it it's their everyday it's their moment you know by moment of 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 life but it's not something one has the time 
or the emotional capacity to dwell on because you have to get on with life, right? So it's this kind of peculiar thing that, yes, putting a monetary value on on that, on, on inequality is important, but it often comes down mm. to disempowering or seeing individuals uh, who experience disadvantage as then being a cost, if that makes sense. So it actually doesn't elevate the conversation to one that's of interest. I'm more of the opinion that we don't have sufficient proportion of poor kids or people who have lost yeah. the lottery of life in media, in politics, in in those positions of leadership and power to actually talk about and advocate for their people, so to speak. And that, I think, for, the, for me, the media is probably the worst, is that we keep running the same old story that disempowers people who are on the periphery and doesn't actually bring people away from bring, being the fringe dwellers. So we're not elevating these these hugely important topics to the mainstream. Well, poverty is shameful, isn't it, you know, in our society? it's it's Look, it, it is, and it's for someone who lives in poverty, it's a shame that you carry every day. You know, I you can't go out with friends. Travelling is not an issue. Lunching out or having a breakfast out is not a possibility. You know, you live on – I remember we used to – and I'm going to get emotional again. I promised I wouldn't do this again <laughs> on your podcast, but I'm going to do it again. But I remember when times were really bad, we would eat hot dogs, right? That was the only food we could afford. And um, I, I, the local supermarket in the small town where, where we were living at the time, there was someone that worked there that, that I went to school with and um, she had a First Nations background and, and um, she would see me kind of toddle up to the, the deli uh, part of the store and, and I'd ask for hot dogs and she'd give me a knowing look like, it's it's like that again, isn't it? And um, she'd weigh the hot dogs and then sneakily add a few more on the side. And and I remember that it, we, it was never spoken about. It was never something that we discussed. It was just a knowing look, right? And it, And I still reflect on that thinking we're not having earnest conversations about what it's like to live like this. We need to have those honest conversations. There are people in politics that have lived like this. There are people in leadership positions that have lived like this. We need to hear from them and we need to elevate the voices of the people with the lived experience so we remove that shame. I think, you know, it's interesting what you sort of said there, um, Liz, about people in politics. And I think I think one of the, the things that sort of retards these these conversations is that often you'll sort of hear 
people who have had pretty good lives, very successful lives, sort of refer to a time in their life, a, a pretty short period of time, often when they were a student, where they sort of claim to to have lived in in poverty, and they and they may have had um, straightened um, budgets and, and 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 experiences at the time. But I think what is different about those experiences and what is often not acknowledged is that it's temporary, and that you know when you're a student eating one dollar bags of noodles or pasta, like you know that you're probably not going to be doing this for the rest of your life. You know, you're getting a degree that will probably mean that your earning capacity will be above average for 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 every Australian and that this is sort of a temporary position in your life. And and I think that is actually one of the reasons why these conversations don't get off the ground because people kind of claim that they understand, um, you know, your experience there, Liz. But when you were buying those hot dogs, like I, I'm not sure you really envisaged that one day you would be a university lecturer and that your life would be quite different. Uh, whereas, you know, the same student potentially buying the same hot dogs would kind of know, well, this is not going to be me forever. Ah, uh, the faux the faux battler, right? The, the person that likes to to tell us that they they've experienced the the noodle um, uh, economy and and what it's like and so on and it's interesting that you say it's kind of that poverty for some is a transitory state that it's not a permanent state and what's so fascinating about the research and I'll, I'll acknowledge my privilege now I have have an enormous amount of education that I would never have dreamed of ever having as a high school dropout. For the reality in Australia is that the 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 rung of life that you're born into is the one you tend to stay with for life. There is very little social mobility over life. So those people that tell us about their faux experiences aren't really reflective of what it's like to be born into a circumstances where you've lost the lottery of life. Now, I've acknowledged my privilege and I now probably sound like someone who is being a faux battler. I have seven children. I started having children as a teen mum. I have no money, uh, no link to, to money or wealth, uh, and that will be my lot in life. I will transfer that inequality to my children. We, I have a great job, but I work part-time. And I'm on a very low salary comparatively for an academic. So actually, my my circumstances have improved a damn sight from the days of the hot dog and the deli. But can I tell you, we still have hot dog days. And in a way that I probably probably don't want to disclose here, out of fear that people would judge me because they won't see me as a successful person. Well, I certainly see you as a successful person, and I also like <laughs> any discussion of hot dogs on a podcast called Democracy Sausage, of course. But, no, the points you make, Liz, are, uh, are you know are profoundly well made. I'm interested, uh, Glyn, in, in this, you know, I, I guess what's coming through in what Liz is saying, it's not a, a revelation in this sense, but it's reinforced the extent of intergenerational poverty or disadvantage where you're born how you're born who you know what's you know the, the milieu in, into which you uh come into existence these things become uh, th- these things are very fixed uh and for policy makers which is 
what you're you're trying to address here with the policies that uh, and the and and addressing the problems through your podcast and through the Paul Ramsey Foundation. I guess that's the real challenge, isn't it, to try and get into these intractable areas of of policy and and come up with solutions that are actually going to one have a chance of working, but two have a chance of being embraced in, in public policy itself. Absolutely. Uh, first, can I just echo what you've just said? I mean, Liz just gave us a powerful example of of lived experience, but she stepped through that to take us to some of the, the big social challenges about the fact that yeah. for most people getting out of poverty is extremely difficult. Alison Pennington and, and Rick Morton in our first uh, episode of Life's Lottery from similar backgrounds take up this narrative as well. And one of the points they make is how difficult it is to develop a sense of optimism and opportunity when you are worrying about the hot dogs, when life is so constrained. And they both said that it was only when they later in life started to to break out of the poverty trap did they realise just how overwhelming the experience had been in framing their understanding of the world and themselves and their possibilities and and that sense of how others might see them. That Liz is just so so powerfully encapsulated. When we started the work at the Ramsey Foundation, the first thing we did was commission some really substantive research, which completely echoes Liz's uh, point. It, it showed us that though, yes, there are a significant number of Australians who cycle in and out of poverty, uh, not students who have a brief moment, but people p- through their life who do cycle in and out. For those who experience the most extreme economic um, inequality in our country, which is around 10%, just a little over 10% of the population, their chances of breaking out of that financial position during their lifetime are vanishingly small. And this is the really powerful point. We do have a view that poverty cycles, but maybe people get out over time. Most people who experience that don't. And there's also a big gender element in that. It's much more difficult to break out of poverty if you're a woman. Not that it's easy for a man. Maria, how do we how do we get politics to understand this? You know, to understand this problem in any kind of meaningful and forceful way. Because if we think about uh, housing affordability, for example, which is a I'm sure Liz would agree an absolutely key aspect of all this housing security, housing affordability, being on the margins and being held on the margins. We we now see this situation getting worse. Uh, A recent report, uh, an October report in the Sydney Morning Herald showed that the percentage of a person's income required to meet the monthly payments on a new mortgage house in Sydney is 45%, up roughly uh, 10% uh, since 2011. There's some there's some recognition of a, of of sort of a housing ownership problem in policy, at least in terms of the discourse of politics. We were discussing earlier the uh, the John you know famous John Howard question from 2004: Who do you trust to keep interest rates low? That was really talking to the propertyed middle class, or at least people who have mortgages. But the proportion of the electorate that cannot even afford to have a mortgage and therefore is living in a, with a higher degree of insecurity seems set to increase. Uh, there's a big mismatch here, isn't there, in, in the, whole, the whole kind of project of politics and what's actually going on? Yeah, so I think there's actually a couple of things um, going on here. The first is that our welfare system, especially for the aged, is based on the idea that you own your own home. 
and uh, we can kind of see how that is not fit for purpose when we see that, um, you know, women in their 60s, basically grandmas who spent their working lives looking after their children and not acquiring assets and then got divorced or, or for whatever reason have experienced family breakup are the fastest growing number of homeless people. Now, this is, we were talking about shame before, like this is shameful in such a wealthy country that this is how we have uh, treated this generation. Yeah cohort of of women the second is that some of these things are like a federalism um, problem where you sort of see a lot of buck passing between um, the states and the federal government around the provision of of, of services or the supply of of housing and, and so forth but I, I I do think actually that some of it kind of goes to exactly what Liz was saying about uh, poverty and the way people who have experienced poverty are effectively not represented. And and I think there is a subtle shift going on at the moment, which is, you know, so when my parents emigrated here, they, they were low skilled. Well, they had no skills. They were literally um, peasants. Uh, so they came here to, to work in non-skilled labor. A number of really important policy changes sort of happened uh, between the time uh, of their arrival and their children's birth, right, around free dental care, uh, the, the provision of Medicare, the, the payment of children's subsidies directly to mothers, all of these, you know, all of these things, the, the fact that private school education was really for elites, so that meant you didn't get hollowing out of schools. All of these things kind of meant that the possibility of people who were who had a high school education or simply were illiterate, whose children could then go on to all get university degrees, and I now work at a university and talking on a podcast, right? That window seems to be kind of closing. So people like Tanya Plibersek, who I think has a very similar kind of trajectory or Ed Husik or something like that, you know, it seems like that the opportunity for that kind of person seems to be closing as well, in addition to the people who have always been marginalised and who public policy has always failed to really serve properly and who we tend to blame for their poverty. And I guess, Glenn, that makes me kind of want to know, like, well, what's what's the research sort of saying about this potential other group of people who are kind of vulnerable and who, who, who governments have been able to do things for to sort of help out of poverty uh, more successfully historically? What's happening to that group compared to the group, the 10% that you were talking about just before? So I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding from the Melbourne Institute of Research is that's the group that cycles in and out depending on where they are in their life and their right. family circumstances and so on. But many of them will experience intermittent poverty through through what might be a long life, but at various times uh, life will get very tough indeed. The hot dog moment will return. Uh, and that's the experience of a significant number of Australians. So uh, they find a foothold, but it's very difficult to sort of get a permanent place. Uh, and you're right, housing becomes a very significant issue in that. So the, the big experience that we need as a nation to dwell on is the one we've just lived. During COVID, we lifted nearly a million Australians out of poverty temporarily. We actually showed that we can do it. We did a range of things. We had direct payments. We made childcare free. We provided subsidies for accommodation. We stopped landlords evicting tenants. All of those things made a profound, if, if short-lived, difference in the lives of the people affected. But what it told, tells us as a, as a country, as a polity, is these problems are not beyond us. It's not like we don't have solutions. It's just we choose not to take them. And we have to ask why. And it goes back to the political questions that you opened the discussion with. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it basically is a perfect case there, really, of the mismatch between policy solutions and and the dominant political discourse. If we think about things like franking credits, which is on any scale outrageous, you know, the the, the paying of a of a tax refund to people who have not even paid any taxable income, made any taxable income other than that, and paid any tax. It's uh, it's outrageous that we have such things, and yet it became a third rail in Australian politics. And it's the same, you would say, with negative gearing and reducing the capital gains tax concession. Things that are, are really only apply to people with significant wealth are undoable, and yet we have these intractable problems that, as you say, Glenn, have been addressed because it suddenly was in everyone's interest for them to be addressed. I mean, you think about the homelessness problem. Suddenly, when you have lockdowns in the middle of a pandemic, it's in everyone's interest that there aren't people out on the street living rough on the street because that that becomes, you know, that's a policing and infection problem right there. So the solution is found almost for the wrong reasons, but the solution is found and again, as you say, short term. I'm wondering, Liz, we'll probably have to finish on this because we're running out of time, but I'm wondering how frustrating that is to see that mismatch between these these intractable problems and our, uh, our sort of slippery political discourse. I'm really angry. I think that's probably the best way to describe it, constructive anger. Uh, let's call it that. It, it's so frustrating, and I think it just sometimes – makes me kind of want to scream, just look at us, you know, see, see us, you know. Certainly during, during COVID, the, uh, watching my children and my, my immediate family benefit and be elevated out of difficulty was something wonderful. The government has been granted a bit of a gift uh, in the form of COVID. We have, a, we have that gift to make change and to make change without putting it to the electorate, without having nasty conversations about negative gearing and the inheritance tax and, 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 you know, the death tax and so on. But we just, we're not primed for reform in Australia and there's no real appetite for that at the moment. And I'm going to come back to demography if we look at the electorate, if we look at the aged um, profile of, of our demography, and then we consider the fact that we vote with our intentions, in, with our best interests in mind, we see that we're going to get the same old, the same old, the same old for probably at least another 20 years. So this is my plea. We have a gift right now to make change, earnest and lasting change that will impact all Australians in a positive way. Let's take this with with two hands, let's have some leadership, and let's see reforms for the better. Well, there's a very big test, I think, for the Labor Party in particular there because we know where the government's position is on this. Short on detail of what Labor's overall manifesto is going to look like, and I suppose there's an invitation there to be adventurous. But as I said before, after the 2019 election, I'm not particularly holding my breath. Glenn Davis, thanks so much for uh, coming on and talking about Life's Lottery. Good luck with that podcast and with that overall work. Thank you, Mark. And we look forward to tracking side by side with Democracy Sausage. 
yes, we'll have to have you come back and talk on on another occasion. And um, vice and, versa. Yeah. Uh, very happy to. And obviously to Maria Taflaga and to Liz Allen, uh, both of ANU as well, uh, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Get angry. Get angry. That's the uh, that's the tick. All right. Until next week. That's bye for now. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.